Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, go to centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in September 2019 as part of a conference on Anglican-Catholic relations marking the 450th anniversary of the 1569 Northern Uprising. The paper is by Reverend Professor Paul Fides and is entitled Between Rome and Reformation, Theology and Spirituality in Shakespeare's Drama. So, Between Rome and Reformation, Theology and Spirituality in Shakespeare's Drama. There is no direct reference to the Northern Uprising of 1569 in any of Shakespeare's plays, but it probably does cast a long shadow over several of them. Memory of the event must have given substance to the mood of anxiety about disorder in the state of England that we can discern in the plays. However, far from contributing to any kind of anti-Roman hysteria, Shakespeare seems to want to use such events to warn the monarch about God-given responsibilities to rule justly. There's another perhaps more surprising lack of direct reference. Although Shakespeare in his final years collaborates with another playwright, John Webster, to write Henry VIII, the play stops short of the break of England from Rome. The climax of the play isn't Henry's excommunication, but the birth of Princess Elizabeth, later to be queen, with a suitable hymn of praise. So neither the rebellion of the English church against the Pope, nor a significant Roman Catholic rebellion against the Protestant monarch, find direct portrayal in Shakespeare's plays, written within less than a century of both events. In this paper, I want to suggest that this reticence on Shakespeare's part is part of what we might call his general spirituality, an attitude free of dogmatic commitments. Though the title of this paper was given to me by my good friend Paul Avis, rather than chosen by me, between Rome and Reformation does in fact sum up rather well a certain impartiality, a, a reluctance to take sides, a breadth of sympathy that we can detect in Shakespeare towards the religious conflicts of his time. Shakespeare seems to live constantly in the between, and this gives his plays a definite character of their own. Reading such a Shakespeare may also help us in our time to make our own theology. So here's a quotation from one of Shakespeare's plays. And from the mouth of England, add thus much more, that no Italian priest shall tithe or toil in our dominions. But as we under God are supreme head, so under him, that great supremacy where we do reign, we will alone uphold without the assistance of a mortal hand. So tell the Pope, or reverence set apart, to him and to his usurped authority. We notice immediately the resonances 
with the assertions of the Act of Supremacy of 1534, and even more immediately with Article 37 of the 39 Articles of Religion as adopted by the Church of England in 1563. And the clause runs, The Queen's Majesty hath the chief power in this realm of England and other her dominions, and is not nor ought to be subject to any foreign jurisdiction. The Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm of England. The phrase usurped authority in Shakespeare's speech also has echoes of the usurped power taken by the Pope according to the homily concerning good order and obedience to rulers and magistrates. There we read a warning against the pretended or coloured power of the Bishop of Rome. For truly the scripture of God alloweth no such usurped power, there's the phrase, full of enormities, abusions and blasphemies. All this would have been familiar to many members of Shakespeare's audience. But I began by saying there was no direct reference in Shakespeare's plays to the separation of England from Rome at the beginning of the English Reformation. And the play I'm citing is not, in fact, about Henry VIII or about Elizabeth I, but about a king of early 13th century England, King John. This distance allows Shakespeare to put a speech of defiance against Rome into the mouth of someone whom he plainly does not regard as a religious hero. Truly, King John is presented by others as heroic and as a chosen vessel of God in anticipating the 16th century break with Rome. That's the picture of John in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and in the contemporary play, The Troublesome Reign of King John, both of which Shakespeare knew. Shakespeare would also have been familiar with the homily against disobedience and willful rebellion, which presents King John as being forced to submit as a vassal to this false usurper, the Bishop of Rome, and laments that the Englishmen of the time did not know their duty to their prince set forth in God's word. Shakespeare, however, makes John into a dubious character in a way that he could not have done with Elizabeth or even Henry, her father. Though he's taken much of the speech of defiance from the play, The Troublesome Reign of King John, his contextualising of it in his own picture of John allows him ostensibly to support the reformers of his time, while at the same time introducing a note of ambiguity into any strict polarisation of Protestantism and Rome into the pious and the blasphemers. Shakespeare's play, King John, opens with a challenge to the legitimacy of John as King of England. This would have been about 1200 after the death of Richard I in 1199. Messengers come to the English court from the King of France, Philip, and from Philip's son, Prince Louis. They address John somewhat untactfully, uh, not as your majesty, but as borrowed majesty. Shakespeare naturally depicts the French as somewhat obnoxious. Their case is that John is not the rightful king of England, and so also 
not king of the territories that England owns in France, notably Poitiers, Anjou, Touraine, and Maine. The rightful and legal king, they maintain, is young Arthur, the son of John's older brother Geoffrey, now dead, and John's nephew. Of course, John replies defiantly to the French ambassadors, he will fight them to the death over his right to the throne. The scene now changes to France in front of the city of Angers, which is the property of the King of England. Battle has resulted in a stalemate, and at this point, the chief citizen of Angers, Hubert, makes a proposal. Suppose that the Lady Blanche, John's uh, John's niece, marries Prince Louis. Then a new alliance could be forged between England and France in which everyone might be satisfied in terms of land and property, even tossing Arthur a consolation prize. Arthur's mother, Constance, is predictably furious, declaring herself and Arthur to be betrayed by this deal. But both John and Louis secretly think, of course, that the alliance will give them a claim on taking more land in the future. And at this point, a faithful follower of John, nicknamed the Bastard, delivers himself of the most important speech in the play on the theme of commodity, which means self-interest or gain. And to this we're going to return. It's at the ensuing marriage celebration of the Lady Blanche and Prince Louis that the church dramatically enters the scene in the person of Pandulf, the Pope's legate. John has refused to appoint the Pope's nominee, an Italian priest called Stephen Langton, to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He goes on refusing in the face of Pandulf's request, declaring that his will as the king anointed by God is superior to that of the Pope's. As I've already suggested, the audience in Shakespeare's time would have heard echoes of the English Reformation here to come three centuries later when Henry VIII denied that the Pope's authority ran in the Church of England. John adds for good measure that he rejects the buying and selling of pardons as juggling witchcraft, a central theme of the Reformation opposition to the Church of Rome. There had been a frisson of recognition among the audience of 1591, for just the same challenge had been issued 50 years earlier. But this is 1200, and the result is that Cardinal Pandolf excommunicates John and commands France to break its newly agreed treaty with England and to fight England in the Pope's name. And in this, Pandulf is practicing commodity himself by urging the doctrine of equivocation, the righteousness of a broken oath that was often lampooned by Protestants at the time of the Reformation. To be faithful to God, Philip must break his faith to man. Philip fears the disorder that will come by the bloody breaking of their pledge, but Pandulf judges all form is formless, order, orderless, save what is opposite to England's love. Philip and Louis decide for war against John and battle is joined once more between England and France. John captures Arthur and puts him into the safekeeping of Hubert, 
chief citizen of Angers and John's right-hand man in France. John now proceeds to practice commodity in a major way. On the one hand, he commissions the bastard to confiscate huge sums of money from the monasteries and churches in England. See thou shake the bags of hoarding abbots, imprisoned angels, that is gold coins, set at liberty. More ruthlessly, he drops very heavy hints to Hubert that he would like Arthur killed in prison, blinding him first. Pandolf, on behalf of the church, continues also to practice commodity or self-interest. He tells Philip and Louis not to worry that uh, Arthur has been captured. John is bound to have him killed, and that will be to the advantage of France, since the English barons will be outraged by this action and will oppose John. Louis asks in the spirit of commodity, what can I gain by young Arthur's death? And Pandalf points out that he can then lay claim on behalf of himself and Blanche to all the lands that Arthur had claimed. What Pandolf predicts more or less happens as Shakespeare telescopes 15 years of history into one year. First, the scene shifts to a castle, unnamed, where Arthur is imprisoned. Arthur shames Hubert into letting him live after all, unblinded. Meanwhile, John has been faced by a rebellion by his barons who are outraged at a rumour they've heard that Arthur is dead. First, he blames Hubert for zealously exceeding orders. But learning that Arthur is in fact still alive, he hastens to get the good news to the truculent barons. Unfortunately, the news is not quite so good after all. Arthur has tried to escape the castle and has killed himself in the process, falling from the battlements, and the English barons have happened at that moment to come upon his dead body. Convinced that this is the work of John, they make an alliance with Louis and the French to overthrow him. John then takes a final step of commodity by making peace with Rome. He consents to the appointment of Stephen Langford as Archbishop of Canterbury, and Cardinal Pandolf immediately commands Louis and the French to cease their attack on John. Consulting their own commodity or self-interest, the French ignore Pandolf and continue their invasion. Nevertheless, Louis is forced to abandon his invasion of England when the largest part of the invading fleet of France is wrecked off the coast of England. John has little time to enjoy his escape. Just when the barons have returned to their allegiance and the French armada is wrecked in 1216, John is carried off the battlefield in a high fever. He's taken to Swinstead Abbey, where he dies of three poisoned pears served to him by a Catholic monk, thereby earning his place in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The play is, we can readily see, full of resonances to tensions between the Protestant Elizabeth and the Catholic Church and its representatives. Shakespeare is telling the story of a king whose legitimate succession to the English throne is questioned, who has defied the authority of the Pope, 
who has been excommunicated, who has imprisoned a rival claimant to the throne and arranged for him to be killed, who blames the person commissioned to carry out the task when it causes a bad reaction among his nobles, and who's only saved from an invasion by a foreign army when an armada is wrecked off the coast. All this is remarkably similar to the story of Elizabeth. Her succession to the English throne is questioned by Catholic authorities. She defies the Pope and is excommunicated. She imprisons her rival, Mary, Queen of Scots, and sends a warrant for her to be executed. After Mary's death, when her enemies make propaganda out of it, she blames the overzealousness of the person who carried out the deed, Secretary Davison. She's only saved from foreign invasion by the destruction of the Spanish Armada, in 1588, just three years before this play was written in 1591. Pandulf promises canonization as a saint to anyone who murders John, and such canonization was promised by Rome to anyone who murdered Elizabeth. The audience would have been excited and perhaps horrified by the parallels, especially since John was also depicted as suffering a rebellion. There was a continual anxiety throughout Elizabeth's reign that a decisive rebellion would be fostered by dissident Roman Catholics. The memory of the northern uprising centred on the imprisonment of Mary, Queen of Scots, was doubtless in mind. There is indeed a more visible but still indirect reference to the northern uprising in another history play, Henry IV, Part One. The rebellion against Henry, with which the play climaxes, is organised by Harry Percy, his father and uncle Percy, together with the Archbishop of York. The 1569 rising was hatched by descendants of Shakespeare's Percy, and the Catholic Bishop of Ross played a part just like that of Shakespeare's Archbishop. In Shakespeare's play, the Percy's resentment is over Henry IV's refusal to ransom Mortimer, a pretender to the throne. In 1569, the case of the Northern Lords focuses on the demand that Mary, the Scots pretender to the throne, should be left in the keeping of an Elizabethan Percy. Both rebellions, the rising against Elizabeth and that against Henry IV, reflect a schism within the kingdom between north and south. In the setting of the anxious 1590s, it might be thought that Shakespeare would be absolutely opposed to any thought of rebellion, any disturbance of order in the individual body, the body of the state and the body of the cosmos that Elizabethans prize so highly. But Shakespeare cannot be categorised so easily. As we've seen, all the major players in King John, with perhaps the exception of the bastard, practice commodity or self-interest, kings, princes and churchmen alike. This is neither a Protestant nor a Catholic play. Its even-handedness is characteristic of Shakespeare's spirituality, and to a consideration of that, we now turn before returning momentarily to King John. Historians of the Tudor period have recently become inclined, at least some of them, to the view that there was a blurring of boundaries between different religious confessional attitudes at this time. 
While theologians of the different parties and politicians who wish to exploit differences might make sharp differences in belief and church polity, for most ordinary people, their daily experience would have usually led them to understand that they had more in common than not. A good deal of confusion must have been abroad in the pews, since in the space of 25 years, they or their parents had experienced a movement from Roman Catholicism to two kinds of Protestantism, a counter-movement back to Catholicism, and then a reversal once again back to a Protestant faith. Putting it another way, in one generation, from 1530 to 1560, they had experienced five different versions of official state religion, five different and competing monotheisms, as one commentator has put it. A popular sense of what has been called unsettlement must have been exacerbated by what some recent historians have identified as a reluctance of the majority of the English to just settle down as Protestants. They've stressed that a kind of residual Catholicism persisted throughout the 16th century and into the next, thus revising a previously held reading of the Reformation as starting an inevitable progression towards a fully Protestant world. And uh, you heard one version of that argument, of course, last night from Eamon Duffy. On the popular level, there must have been a general resistance to the notion that grandparents in a family had been shut out of salvation due to their Catholic beliefs. Walls between confessions were made even more porous by the concern of the liturgists and theologians in the New Church of England to retain a continuity with medieval Catholicism, though not with allegiance to the Pope, to the retention of episcopacy and especially through the style of the new prayer book. This approach was congruent with the deliberate policy of Elizabeth to make the English church as comprehensive as possible, so that, in the striking phrase of Barbara Everett, it was a drafty church with the door left open for a variety of incomers. There's been a good deal of speculation about whether Shakespeare was secretly a Roman Catholic. The so-called evidence centering upon the supposed continuing Catholicism of his father John, whose name appears on a spiritual testament recovered from the rafters of the Henley Street house in 1757. To this has been added a claimed identification of the 16-year-old William with a young tutor and actor named William Shakeshaft at the Catholic household of Alexander Horton in Lancashire. However, any external evidence produced has been just as often refuted. Rather than a futile debate about whether Shakespeare was either in actuality or at heart, Catholic or Protestant, we should observe that the blurred religious identities of the time and the attempted comprehensiveness of the church was the fruitful ground for Shakespeare's own approach to religion. And in that, I think we can find two dimensions. In the first place, it allowed, even encouraged him to draw on Christian resources for dramatic and poetic purposes without any necessary commitment of his own to their truth. He may well have had a view on theological and ecclesial matters, but there was no pressing reason for him to make this explicit. 
He can draw on texts of scripture, make reference to theological disputes of the time, and reflect the fractious state of the church for the purpose of creating images, character, and plot, and especially as a poet for making metaphor. In the second place, Shakespeare's religious situation is, I suggest, the propitious moment for developing a kind of general spirituality, an awareness of dimensions of life which transcend the merely material, but a spirituality which can't be confined within dogmatic structures of belief. Key features to which the plays witness are an acute sense that death always presses in, a conviction that people need to exercise forgiveness in face of human frailty, a confidence that there's something enduring about the relations of love so that they can outlast even death, a recognition that no human justice is absolute, and a belief that the values of community take priority over structures of power. That's what I'm calling a general spirituality. In King John, echoes of the homilies in the 39 articles are thus used to develop the drama of a king who thinks there is a price for everything. There are also quite a number of biblical references in the play. For example, about to break his sacred oath to King John, King Philip contemplates washing his hands of responsibility like Pilate, Arthur, about to be blinded by Hubert, wishes there were a moat in Hubert's eye. And Pandolf gloats that John is set in a slippery place, echoing Psalm 73. Notably, the bastard's scathing analysis of the commodity that drives everyone towards their own gain refers to this commodity as the bias of the world and an all-changing word. And the term word here carries theological significance in echoes of John chapter 1. Commodity is a word that changes everything, the direction, purpose, course, and intent of creation. And so it undoes the work of the divine word which changed chaos into order. The accumulation of biblical and theological references is then the basis for a spirituality in which the divine right to rule of an anointed king can be challenged. One critic, Beatrice Groves, has noted that the language of sacral kingship in this play is transferred from John to Arthur. Christological imagery is used to enhance a sympathetic portrayal of Arthur in a way which is fundamentally opposed to the application of such imagery to John by Shakespeare's own sources. Groves suggests, for example, that in the scene where Hubert intends to blind Arthur, Arthur's reference to himself as sitting as quiet as a lamb has resonances of the mystery plays of the sacrifice of Isaac. These substituted a lamb for the ram caught in a thicket of Genesis 22, which took Isaac's place as a sacrifice. This use of a lamb in the performance of the mysteries underlined the typological reference to Christ, the Lamb of God, of whom the words in Isaiah 53.7 were seen as a prediction. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Instead of the proto-Protestant martyr king, it is now an innocent boy, quiet as a lamb, 
who is the locus for the sacred in this play. This transfer of sacral identity does not mean that Shakespeare is taking sides in an ancient succession dispute, or even that there is coded sympathy with Catholic doubts about Elizabeth in the present time. Shakespeare appears to be saying that if a monarch acts tyrannically or in self-interest, rather than the interests of the Commonwealth, then even anointing in the name of God cannot validate his or her rule. Shakespeare's play Richard II, in which Richard is deposed by Henry Bolingbroke, makes this clear. The divine right of kings cannot save a monarch when he ceased to act as a king should act in obedience to the laws of God, and so when he or she has effectively denied the true meaning of kingship. Shakespeare seems here to have followed the view of reformers such as Calvin, that if a monarch were no longer acting as a servant of God, who had given him authority, then true order had been infringed, and there were circumstances in which he could be removed justly. So this play, as a mirror for a queen, packs a powerful punch. In Shakespeare's spirituality of power, to follow commodity, and not justice, places any monarch in a vulnerable position. The even-handed and so ambiguous handling of religious identities by Shakespeare may now be explored in a totally different context, the Denmark of Hamlet. This is a play where differences in theology play a key role in a plot which has been summarised as a Protestant prince meeting a Catholic ghost. Hamlet, fresh from studies in Protestant Wittenberg, encounters on the battlements of Elsinore an awe-inspiring figure who claims to be his dead father, seeking revenge on his brother, now King Claudius, for murdering him. The plot of the play is going to turn on Hamlet's delay in carrying out this commission. And a chief reason for his procrastination is his theological uncertainty about the identity of the ghost. Hamlet is not sure whether the ghost is honest, as he puts it. That is, he doesn't know whether the ghost is really the spirit of his father, or whether it's the devil assuming the shape of his father in order to trick him into an action, murder, that will damn him eternally. There was considerable theological dispute at this time about whether the souls of the dead could ever return to earth. Some theologians, mainly Catholic, thought they could based on the doctrine of purgatory. But others, mainly Protestant, and including James I, who'd written a book on the subject, insisted that all ghosts were deceitful appearances of demons, pretending to be the spirits of the departed. Hamlet is racked by uncertainty about whether the ghost genuinely is his father. The ghost claims to be a spirit in purgatory, saying he is doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. From time to time, Hamlet appears to believe him, calling the ghost he, referring to his father. 
at least for the sake of holding conversation, he decides, I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane. But at other times, Hamlet calls the ghost it, more suitable for a demon. He muses that the spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy abuses me to damn me. Though he promises faithfully to remember the ghost in one soliloquy, to be or not to be, he seems to forget him, declaring that death is the country from which nobody comes back. Death is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. We cannot say, reading the play, what Shakespeare himself believes on the issue, whether he is as Catholic as the ghost appears to be. He's simply using this theological dispute to motivate the action. Another key moment, driven by theology, is Hamlet's failure to take an opportunity to kill Claudius when he finds him alone praying. Hamlet's reasoning is that while he is at prayer, Claudius is in a state of grace. If he killed him while praying, Hamlet thinks his soul would go straight to heaven. Why should he do for Claudius what Claudius did not do for his own father, who was killed without any opportunity to prepare and repent, and so has ended up suffering the flames of purgatory? So he refrains from killing Claudius in order to kill him another time when he can damn his soul as well. This is an extraordinary piece of theological drama. Hamlet's desired revenge on Claudius is motivated by the ghost's lament that he is suffering in purgatory, a Catholic view. But Hamlet appears to be manifesting a Protestant conviction that repentance and faith before death will ensure an immediate transit to heaven, since in the Protestant view there is no purgatory. In Hamlet's words, Claudius by praying is here and now purging his soul. In a Catholic view, it is not impossible that God might decide in the mystery of divine grace to receive this murderer directly into heaven without any last rites and absolution. But Hamlet's confidence this would happen has a distinctly Protestant feel to it. In fact, he's misread the situation since Claudius admits he can't repent and knows that a mere attitude of prayer will achieve nothing. My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. Hamlet's actions seem to require a Catholic belief in purgatory and a Protestant belief in the efficacy of personal repentance simultaneously. There's also an extraordinary moral complexity in the scene. As the audience, do we actually want Hamlet to kill Claudius? If we're standing on the ground of Christian morals, then we can't blame Hamlet for not killing Claudius. Measured by Christian charity, Hamlet appears to be doing the right thing, though for the wrong reason. Both in Hamlet's mind and in the audiences, issues of morality are being raised in a highly subtle and complex way. There's no open debate, but the issues are there, giving depth to the action. 
It's this interweaving of moral values into the play without any open discussion of them that makes Hamlet the enigma it is. In the Renaissance period, two ethics existed side by side. The demand of personal revenge, which lay behind revenge tragedies, and the Christian ethic that revenge belonged only to God, expressed in the biblical phrase, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. People live with this inconsistency. Mostly the two moralities went their own way, but from time to time people felt there was a contradiction between them. The play reflects the society around it in this. There's no open moral struggle in the play between Christian charity and forgiveness on the one hand and revenge ethics on the other. But the conflict is still present in another way. Watching the play, we feel as though there ought to be some struggle. We, the audience, protest there must be a conflict of ethics here. The play makes us feel the contradiction. There's nothing here in the text about the Christian conviction of leaving vengeance to God. It is never debated, but we feel it ought to be. Now, I don't mean there are distinctive Catholic and Protestant sides to this question. Both would feel the moral struggle. The point is that this dilemma is, like the Catholic-Protestant tension in the play, prompting us to develop our own spirituality. Shakespeare himself uses uncertainty in doctrine to develop a spirituality in which relationships between people are centrally important, perhaps more important than doctrine. While Hamlet wavers in his theology, at times Catholic, at times Protestant, what really matters is his loving relationship to his father. Near the beginning of the play, Hamlet tells Horatio, My father, methinks I see my father. And Horatio asks anxiously, Where, my lord? Fearing that the ghost has appeared once more. But Hamlet replies, In my mind's eye, Horatio. It's in the mind and the memory that Hamlet sees his beloved father most clearly. As one commentator has pointed out, the ghost has to keep bidding Hamlet to remember him. Hamlet doesn't have to be told to remember his father. We get the impression that whatever the truth about the ghost and whatever Hamlet's belief about the ghost, his relationship with his father in his memory remains firm. Relationship trumps uncertainty. Similarly, while Hamlet's dialogue with Ophelia is full of riddles, game-playing and uncertain intentions, we don't doubt his love for her. We believe him when Laertes jumps into, in a theatrical gesture into her open grave, while Hamlet simply declares, I loved her. He has not treated her well, but love persists in the face of death, even through human mistakes. For a third example of Shakespeare between Rome and Reformation, I want to turn from Denmark to Vienna, a Catholic city which features in Measure for Measure. Although some critics have suggested that Vienna is a secret cipher in Shakespeare for the desired Catholic haven that Catholics in England were denied, Shakespeare takes the same even-handed and ambiguous approach to religious confessions in this play. The Duke, Vincentio, is able to move around incognito 
in an apparently Catholic Vienna because it is simply an accepted part of the culture for a friar to provide spiritual help to a range of people, including prisoners under a death sentence. But on the other hand, he's wearing the disguise of a friar and is an unordained person offering services of confession and absolution. That that might be acceptable in a Protestant context of members of a congregation confessing to one another, but it would be a scandalous usurpation of the authority of the clergy in a Catholic one. Angelo, Vincentio's chief minister and substitute in his absence, is presented rather obviously as a Protestant Puritan. He is called precise, one of the most common synonyms for puritanical in the period, and refers to himself as one of the saints, the self-designation of all Puritan and separatist believers. Angelo manifests vicious behaviour towards Claudio and Isabella, insisting that Claudio must be executed for having sexual relations with his betrothed and trying then to seduce Isabella with the promise of her brother's reprieve. The play might appear to be an anti-Puritan polemic, but there are cross-currents which trouble this simple description. While the rigorous capital laws against fornication echo Puritan proposals in the period, it's actually the Duke who takes the identity of a good friar who has legislated in this way. Nor is the law alleviated by him at the end of the play, despite mercy given to Claudio and Angelo. It's been suggested by one critic that the play at least gestures towards the possibility of different religious groups living together in one culture. Yet both Angelo's identity and his incorporation to society becomes uncertain at the end. After imagining that he's had sex with Isabella, he reflects on his loss of self. This deed unshapes me quite. Brian Walsh reflects that we're left wondering whether he can restructure his former Puritan self. He says, the end of the play leaves opaque who he is. Is he a Puritan, a reformed Puritan, or an ex-Puritan? Also opaque is how, as any of these, he fits into mainstream society. Shakespeare is referencing a warning from scripture in the very title of the play, Judge not that ye be not judged, admonishes Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again, Geneva Bible. Drawing on the tension between religious cultures in his period and on biblical texts, Shakespeare develops a spirituality of justice. Isabella goes to Angelo to plead for her brother's life, but finds Angelo obdurate, declaring, your brother is a forfeit of the law, and the law, not I, condemns your brother. Angelo cannot, it seems, be moved because he sees human law as final and absolute in its own right. A Calvinist Puritan would understand divine law as having demands to which there are no exceptions. But Angelo has conflated this with human law, in which it is incumbent upon the magistrate to distinguish between different levels of offence. 
employing some personal judgment or equity, which Angelo is not doing. Isabella, by contrast, advances a double argument for mercy, that mercy is the greatest attribute of human rulers because it's most like to God's own, and that every ruler should be aware of human weakness and frailty, including his own. These arguments are given an extra theological dimension by appeal to the act of God in the atonement of human beings. To Angelo's blunt statement, your brother is a forfeit of the law, she replies, alas, alas, why all the souls that were were forfeit once, and he that might the vantage best have took found out the remedy. How would you be if he, which is the top of judgment, should but judge you as you are? Oh, think on that, and mercy then will breathe within your lips like man you made. This speech is full of echoes from Paul's letter to the Romans, with its promise of a new humanity, man you made, and yet also its realistic psychology of a continuing struggle between the old man and the new man, a conflict between the old Adam and the man in Christ. Angelo, however, fails to recognise his own frailty and sinfulness and stands under Paul's accusation in that thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same thing. Romans 2.1, Geneva. The values held by Isabella, willing to let her brother die to preserve her chastity, do make this a problem play. But the whole situation of applying law and justice in a fallen world is a problem of conflicting values that has no neat solution. In this play, there is no direct application to human lawmaking of the act of pardon shown by God in the cross of Christ. Despite attempts by critics and theologians to make the play an allegory of atonement with the Duke as a symbol for God or Christ. In Isabella's speech on mercy, there is the clearest reference to God's initiative in atonement in any Shakespearean text. He found out the remedy. But the spiritual principle that no human law can be absolute and so mercy is essential, emerges from the play without any need for doctrine. So, London, Elsinore, Vienna, three places where Shakespeare stands somewhere between Rome and Reformation. And from his ambivalent position, with the help of biblical texts, a general spirituality emerges concerning power, death, love and justice. The theological reader of his plays today may well learn that standing on the borders of different religious confessions may be the best place from which to develop a spirituality and a theology.